Um, I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles. We'll start in Matthew chapter 24, where we were last week. And uh, I appreciate uh, uh, Michael and his leading us in worship. Amen. It's good to have, have him with us and doing all that. But um, thank you, Michael. Matthew chapter 24 is where we're going to start. And we're going to go some other places. Now, you know, in December of 2024, I will have served as a pastor, lead full-time preacher, for 40 years. I served as a youth pastor before that, and um, I've done uh, some other jobs in ministry while I was teaching school, but as an official licensed worker with the Christian Missionary Alliance, 40 years um, in December, December 31st of 2024. And I've preached on the return of Jesus a number of times. Um, this is not a new thing. It's just that now it just seems way more relevant. The, the problem is that we just don't hear too much about this these days in preaching. Um, we are so desiring to meet people's needs sometimes going into this idea that Jesus is going to come back again doesn't seem to meet people's needs. But I want to tell you that at the core of this teaching is, is the most important need that we have of all. Because when the Bible says to us that we need to be ready, it's in reference to our personal lives and our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And most of us understand the concept of getting ready for something. I mean, our district superintendent, was, was it last week that he preached? No, a week before? It was a week before because I preached last week. Oh, I can't even remember when I preached last. That's not good. But, um, you know, we kind of got some things ready for him, right, to come. We did a few cleaning up things and tidied some things. Um, when you have a family coming to visit you, uh, do you get ready for them when they come and visit? You know, you might clean the house a little deeper. You might paint. I don't know. You might tidy up the room. Um, you, you buy groceries, right? Getting ready for all those grandbabies or whatever. What if the President of the United States came to visit you? Now, that's not very likely. But what if he decided to come visit? You might even buy a new house. <laughs> no, you wouldn't do that. But you do everything you could to get ready for the President to come. So it's not foreign in our thought processes that if you have a relationship with somebody and you haven't seen them for a while or they haven't been around, that you're going to anticipate them coming and you're also going to prepare for them to come. Now, um, <clears throat> one of the good things about going into this stuff, this is the second week in a row, is that um, it causes me uh, to go back and study 
you know, some stuff that I haven't studied for a while or check out and make sure the stuff in my head is really in line with the word. And of course, then when you do that, and I'm going to say what I said last week, there's a whole lot of ideas out there about when Jesus is coming and what that's going to look like, okay? So I'm going to tell you things that are definite and certain from Scripture, and where I can let you know that other people have different ideas on those things. And this morning, I want you to know it's okay if you don't agree with me. There's some things that we need to agree on, but you don't have to agree with me on everything that I say up here. I know that's kind of unusual, and I'm not suggesting to you that I don't believe what I'm saying to you, or I don't think what I'm saying is important. It is, but you don't have to agree with me for us to be in fellowship, for us to worship together, because we come together to worship Jesus. We're gathered together uh, to do just that, and that's the most important thing. However, let's be reminded of a, of a couple things that we said last week. Number one, the Bible's very clear. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. So let's say that out loud together. Jesus is coming again. He came, he he, and the reason we're going here is that we've, we've done Easter, the death, the resurrection of Christ. He showed himself to folks, and, and he said that he would return. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and following in that whole area, you know, the disciples were reminded, why are you staring into the heavens? This one who was taken up will return in the same way. And so Jesus is coming again, and it's going to be a visible appearing. There's all kinds of things in prophecy that most people believe have already occurred, but we have not visibly seen it. As we said to you last week, the nations will mourn. The nations will see. It will be visible. Why will they mourn? Because they know the message, the message that they need to have our relationship with God through Jesus, and many people have rejected that message. And so when Christ returns in this visible way, there will be mourning. Secondly, remember, I said to you, Jesus returning is returning, but we don't know when. So let's say that out loud. We don't know when. Nobody knows, and I warned you to run away from people who tell you they know exactly. However, let's finesse this a little bit, because I'm going to read some passages this morning in Thessalonians, and I'm going to go in, into Daniel and read some passages, and, and uh, Thessalonians says that Jesus will come like a thief in the night, okay? In other words, if somebody breaks into your house, you're not planning for that. You're not expecting it unless you've been warned that the thief is coming and then you are prepared and expecting it. So in terms of the imminent return of Jesus, for you and I, we have warning signs. We are biblical people. We read the scriptures. We've heard sermons. We know that we are in the end times. There are signs that are available to us, things that are happening that are telling us, hey, you guys need to be ready. But for someone who is not in the loop, 
somebody who is not in relationship with God through Jesus, it is going to be a startling, shocking thing like a thief coming in the night. Do you understand the difference there? It's not going to be a surprise. You guys have security systems. You've got cameras. You've got lights, right? If, if your neighbor called and said, hey, I heard there's going to be a break-in at your house, you would call the police. You'd be all ready for that to happen. So as I'm studying, as I'm going through this, I'm being reminded that you and I have been warned. You and I know that Jesus is coming back, but there are folks who don't know that. They're not aware of that. Hence, it leads to the third statement. The primary thing that you and I are supposed to do to be ready for the return of Christ is to be faithful, faithful in the mission that Jesus has called us to. That involves living faithfully, living a life that is a Jesus life. You know, um, I saw a statement, uh, and, I, and I read briefly this article this week, that Christianity is one religion where the, the founder of the teachings of the founder of the movement are really not paid attention to very much in the Christian church. Do you get where I'm, what I'm saying there? That the teachings of Jesus for many people in churches really, they don't matter. The things that Jesus says about how we're to live and how we're to treat each other and how we're to behave, we, we just kind of ignore many of those things in Christianity. It's, it's a religion. But the teachings of Jesus, if you lived your life according to the teachings of Jesus, just the red letter teachings of Jesus, your life would be radically different than it is. I'm not assuming that you don't live that way. I'm sure that some of you do. Do you understand the point? So being ready as a Christ follower means that we are living the life that Jesus called us to, number one. Number two, we are about the business. One of the coaches for the Jags used to say, I'm trying to remember which coach it was. It was several coaches ago. Really good guy. The players loved him, but he wasn't very successful as a head coach. And it's his favorite saying, what was his saying? It was... Do your job. See, you know, your mind's in sync with mine right now. Yes. He used to yell to his t the players, just do your job. Do your job. Do your job. Now, the current coach doesn't have to say do your job because the players love him and they will put their lives on the line for him. You get the difference. Not, not, someone's not screaming, do your job. They're doing your, their job out of love. So the motivation for you and I to live and to be faithful is, is the realization that Jesus died on the cross for us, gave his life, that we might have life everlasting. That's an issue of grace and mercy. So we are going to live and do our job out of a great love for him. And by the way, what is our job? Matthew 28, make disciples. Acts 1.8, as empowered people go to the nations, making disciples. Throw in, love your neighbor as yourself, and love your God with all your heart and mind and soul. I think we could throw those two ideas in as well, directly from the teachings of Jesus. 
Okay, so the other principle that I want to give, and there's a couple others that we're going to get into today, is that the New Testament is written to show how Jesus meets the prophecies of the Old Testament, okay? The New Testament is written to show how Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, meets the prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, let's, let's get into some scriptures, and then there's a few more principles to leave with you. Matthew 24, we're going to read through this again, and then you're going to see how Matthew 24 is echoing uh, Daniel and what he's written in chapter 9 and uh, chapter uh, 12. And also, I'm going to read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. The Word of God says this, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to his buildings. See all these things, he asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. That's in fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear, war, uh, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains, signs. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, that no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be for those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. And if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or, here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, 
the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaking. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know summer is near. Again, that's what I was referencing before. We have signs, we have information. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And I'm going to stop there uh, because we read the rest of the passage um, last time. Now, turn back in your Bibles to Daniel, Old Testament Daniel, chapter 9. And there's a lot here. I'm going to focus just beginning in verse 20, and I'm going to read seven verses. Then we're going to read in chapter 12. This is Daniel writing. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. When I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, this is Daniel having a vision from Gabriel. Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you begin to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this, 
from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, see that phrase, who's the anointed one? Jesus. The ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. And in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now there's an awful lot there. So let me summarize it by saying this. Scholars and theologians, just about everyone I read or referenced, uh, e papers are being written like today about these topics. Oh, I read one uh, this week that was written in 2023. And all of them say this, that there's a total of 70 weeks that are described in this passage. The first 69 weeks, all of those prophecies and all those things that were said to be done, uh, the building of the temple, the, the coming of the Messiah, the destruction of the temple, the desecration of the temple, all of those things have happened in the first 69 weeks. And there only remains this last seven, uh, this 70th week period of time to unfold. And what we understand is in the middle of that time, in the middle of that last week, and by the way, obviously that week is not a seven day week, right? Because uh, a long time has come between the destruction of the temple. When was it the temple destroyed? 70 AD. And we know, and some people say, that that temple has already been desecrated because a Roman general slaughtered a pig on the altar of that temple. So all of these things are in debate. Contemporary scholars say that we are in this last week we are anticipating the return of Jesus. And the argument that goes on here is this. What will you and I experience in this last week of the 70? Are you and I going to experience what was described in, in uh, Matthew 24 and other passages as the day of the Lord? We argue over terminology. We argue over what... Uh, it means when, uh, when, we, um, when we talk about persecutions and tribulations. The word that's used for tribulation in all these passages uh, is, is a torture uh, that, was just, that was similar to crucifixion, but used by ancient peoples where they would lay you on the ground and tie you down and put a varying degrees of heavy rocks on your body. And you would suffer in that as that pressure was placed upon you and eventually you would suffocate and die. And so the issue is, 
Are we going to go, you and I as followers of Jesus, are we going to go through this tribulation? Are we going to suffer? Now, a lot of the interpretation of these passages is rooted in what I'd like to describe as American Christianity. Americans don't really like the concept of tribulation and suffering. We really don't. We like a Christianity that focuses on the love of God and he accepts us and he always forgives us and he always holds us up and all those things are true. We also, in America, we kind of like a Christianity that talks about God blessing us all the time, God giving us stuff, okay? That's the kind of Christianity we like. We, get, we have certain needs and wants, and of course God is, is going to meet my needs all the time. And, and what the Bible, when the Bible talks about needs, it's not at all what we conceptualize about needs, okay? Our needs are usually a little higher. Um, you know, I, 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 I would just love um, a 1957 Chevy... Uh, Woody Surfmobile, right? You know what I'm talking about? I have a need for that. And so, contemporary Christianity in America says, well, brother, if you have that need, you just name it. You just speak that need out loud. And God will provide that for you because that's what Christianity is all about in the United States. You know, I'm not sure I really need that. I said to my mechanic one time, man, I like to get me one of those old pickups. He goes, I had a 67 Chevy pickup. He says, yeah, and if you got it, who would fix it for you? <laughs> right? He goes, get to find an old school mechanic. I mean, when I had a 67 Chevy pickup, I needed a new fuel line. The guy said, you want the bad news? And I said, yeah. He says, you need a new fuel line. He said, you want the good news? cost $2.67 to replace the fuel line. See, that's, that's old school mechanic. You can't do that these days anymore. But anyway, I'm digressing. I'm getting off the point. So, let's read together in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 4. And there were some rumors going out that... Um, Maybe Jesus had already come back and, you know, things were going differently, but Paul writes to the Thessalonians to kind of fill them in on some stuff. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning of verse 13, reads like this. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Tim Keller wrote, in, as Paul reminded us, that Tim Keller was a man of God who wrote a lot of really good books and planted a lot of churches. And Tim Keller said that for the Christian, death means that life just gets even better. So think about that. So that we don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, I tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven 
with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Ernest Angley, an, an old school uh, evangelist, he had a television program for many, many years. Ernest Angley was married to his wife, Angel. Uh, she died before him, and when he buried her, he buried her in a, in a coffin in a mausoleum, and he put a phone line into her coffin. Do you know why he put that phone line in her coffin? Because the Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first, and he told her as she was dying that when she rises, to give him a call so he would know when Jesus was coming back. So, now we do some strange things, okay? Uh, I'm, like, I'm sure she probably would have forgotten the number. I mean, after all, she was dead. But anyway. <laughs> so, let's continue reading. It goes on in chapter 5. This is all connected to talk about the day of the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, my earlier reference. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us, get this, to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. So the argument in the, in the Christian faith is this last seven-day period, however long it is in reality, uh, that tribulation will happen during that time. And some people say that Christians will be raptured before that tribulation starts. Other people believe that that rapture will happen in the middle. If you remember back in Daniel, it talked about in the middle of the seventh week, and some people say that that rapture will occur during that week before the great tribulation that happens the last three and a half years. And then other people in the faith also believe that we are all going to go through, we're post-trib, we're going to go through tribulation and have these experiences. Okay? There's another view that I ascribe to that says this. Go back to um, verse 9 of what I just read. I want you to look at this very carefully. I'm not making this up. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you're doing. So, what I think is going to unfold for us is that there is coming a time described as the day of the Lord. It's an Old Testament reference where God calls out his fury and then delivers all of his children. The day of the Lord. It's spoken of many times in the Old Testament. It's referenced in the New Testament as well. You and I, as children of Jesus, this passage, I believe, teaches, we will not experience the wrath of God. But I think that we're naive to think that we will not experience tribulation as Christians. You see, remember me talking about the American view of tribulation? You know that there are individuals in the Philippines, in some of those islands, who are being executed because they're followers of Jesus, correct? You and I know that in Sudan, there are followers of Jesus who are going through great tribulation and being imprisoned because they are followers of Jesus. Throughout the centuries, people have died because they're followers of Jesus. This all doesn't seem right and it doesn't seem fair to the kids who are here this morning. We're not having a conversation about what is right and what is fair. We're having a conversation that we live in an evil world who sees good and desires to eliminate good. The righteous will not experience the wrath of God but I just don't see in scriptures that we won't experience any tribulation at all. There are great similarities as you read these passages in Daniel. I encourage you to study on your own. And can I encourage you when you study on your own to read the Bible on your own? Read the prophecies in Daniel and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians where Paul gets into this and other passages as well. And can I encourage you to be very careful about who you listen to online and what books you read as an individual. Because you could get really confused about what to believe. But I can promise you this. Jesus is returning. We don't know when. And you and I are not going to experience the wrath of God. I can say that with certainty without any doubt or, or negativity at all in my heart in terms of, of feeling, not believing in any way that I'm leading you astray or uh, that I'm manipulating you in some way. However, I want to conclude by saying this. The warning is there. Some people who have rejected a relationship with God through Christ are going to experience the wrath of God. What is the gospel? And, I, and I'm speaking to, to folks who, who are, are concerned about fairness. You know, everything's about being fair these days. The gospel means good news. Good news. So... 
If the gospel means good news, what's on the other side of that? Bad news. There's got to be some bad news. Okay? There's got to be some bad news. Um, have you ever been punished for something that one of your siblings have done? You have? See, I saw that hand many times. Okay, right. You know, sometimes the oldest gets punished for the sins of the younger. Is that fair? You know, do, do bad people get away with bad behavior? Yeah, is that fair? No, you know. That's why you and I don't have to sort all that. So, you know, what's the army thing? Kill them all, let God sort out the ones that go to heaven. You know, that's kind of a cynical <laughs> view, of, view of life and, and, uh, and, and, and sense, but that's kind of how we view it. You know, life is not about fairness. You know, um, I'm sitting there thinking, my mom's 90 years old. She's been how long in rehab, having her leg heal, right? She's home, she's feeling great, and then she gets COVID and she's back in the hospital. Is that fair? That's not fair, but that's life. That's life. That's what life is all about. But we are not a people without hope. You know, I know that if, if my mom, as she's in the hospital, should die this week from COVID, which is very possible she could, I know that life is going to get better for her, right? She's not going to have to worry about a plate holding her leg together. No, she's, she's, she's in, with Jesus and, and a new body, and she's transformed. I know that because I've had conversations with her about those things, especially in these last weeks. I know that my dad, who died of cancer from being exposed to Agent Orange in the Vietnam War, but didn't die until he was 72, until he was 72, I don't mourn without hope because I know that I've had those conversations with him. I know my grandfather, who died of a stroke watching a baseball game, sitting in his easy chair on Singer Island, West Palm Beach, Florida, is in heaven with Jesus. Why? Because I asked him the question, Pops, do you have a relationship with God through Jesus? And he said, yes, I'm a believer. He says, I know sometimes I don't live like it. I could tell you some stories. But anyway, I, I, I have hope in Jesus. And that's what we are. We are a people who have hope. We're, we're not a people who have to live where everything is roses and smells good and and is awesome and wonderful all the time. The world around us tells us that that's what religion is all about. That's what American Christianity is all about. But you and I understand that bad things happen to good people. And sometimes we don't understand why those things are happening. And we understand that life is not fair. But I can say to you, without doubt, that if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have given your relationship to God through Jesus, then you have a place purchased for you in heaven and you will not experience the wrath of God when Jesus returns. And so I want to encourage you, if there's any doubt in your mind, 
any doubt that you have, have submitted your life to God in the name of Jesus, I want to encourage you to do that today. Remember, the gospel is good news only if you understand the bad news. The bad news is this. God is God and you're not God. You're not God. You're not perfect. You're creating the image of God and that image is distorted and Jesus died to restore that image. And Jesus in his death on the cross gives you an opportunity to receive the gift of eternal life that Jesus has given to you. And when you receive Jesus, God no longer looks at you through the sin that you've committed in your life and your rebelliousness and all those things. He looks at you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And you have the opportunity to have that life everlasting with him. So let's just bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. And um, I just want to give anyone the opportunity. If you haven't given your life to God through Jesus and you want to give your life to him this morning, um, just raise your hand and I'm going to pray for you. I won't point you out, but I'm going to pray for you. Anybody here that wants to do that this morning? I know most of